Praise God. Children, it's good to have you here with us today. And just a word of warning, I'm going to need a volunteer, so Miss Alyssa, if you can pick somebody for me in just a little bit, or have somebody ready. If you're up on Facebook and saw this at all, we're going to go back into the, the area of prophecy again. And I was debating about whether to do this, because um, uh, I, don't, I don't get a whole lot of comments from y'all. Uh, and I, I don't push for them. I don't you know, do a whole lot to ask, ask for them. But every once in a while, you know, you'll, you come up, you know, one or two, you get some comments here and there. You can kind of gauge some of the response. But throughout the entire time here at Prophecy, there's been zip. Nothing. <laughs> so I'm wondering, if, well, maybe we're just not in an area that's really helping. I thought that first one, that helped me. I went out of there shouting. I said, dear God, I didn't, I didn't even know some of that stuff about Prophecy before. That would just really help me out. And... um so it, we're going to get into one more just because I feel like we should. <laughs> but I did set out with this, with the purpose here is to uh, do a teaching on the seven churches. Uh, we're just kind of in here just because it helps us with some areas of, of prophecy. And if we get a fourth one, I don't know. I was kind of thinking there was going to be two of them. And I was preparing on two of them, two of them. And we didn't do the second one. So I don't know if we're going to get back to that one yet or not. But we're, we're into this one here now. And this is prophecy that calls out sin. We want to look at some things that we can learn from this, about that. That sometimes the word of prophecy, it will call out sin that people are in, that people are walking in. And in, in Pergamos, we had this. There were some people that were walking in sin, and of course some of the other churches were doing this as well, but this is a good example for us to take a look at that. Look at this. There were those in the church who held to the faith even when facing death. They faced death. Not just persecution, not being thrown in jail. I mean, they were going to be killed if they held on. And they still held on. But there are also those who compromised to fit in with all the evil that was around them in order to avoid the persecution. So as we look to this word that is given to the church, we want to see the principles that are there for us giving. And here's another aspect that we're going to get into today. Receiving. Do you know there's some things you need to know about how to receive prophecy? Not just in how to give it. Now this word, as it was given to the church, was almost certainly received with great excitement by some of the people in the church. And yet there were some who didn't receive this at all. Despised this word. In the same church. We're not talking the world. We're talking in the church. This same word was given by the head of the church, Jesus, to the pastor of the church. And there would be some in the church who would be excited about the things that this prophecy says. And in the same church, there are going to be people that despised it. Now, God is not on both sides. There are times... And we see this in the, in these letters to the churches and all through history as well as today. There are times, folks, you need to take a side. None of this wishy-washy stuff. Well, maybe God's in it. Maybe God's not. And what he's writing to this church is, folks, you better take a side because I'm telling you, I am on this side. I am not on that side. And there are people in the church that were on both sides. Now we saw that some in the last one, but this is one that really has this as an example. And then here at the end, when we finish this up, I'm going to ask you this question. 
What side do you think you would come down on if you were in Pergamos? If you were there in the days this letter was written, this prophecy was given, what side do you think you would have come down on? Now, I know if I ask for a show of hands, every single one of you is going to say on the right side. I know it. However, we're going to give you a self-test that you can check it out. And we, I think, I have a vague memory, but I didn't go look it up. I think we did something like this in Ezekiel. But I, I didn't uh, have the time to, to check that out. I have a lot of things that are categorized in the, in the notes and stuff that I can find in a, in a flash. But uh, that's not one of them. So I, I didn't try and, and go out there. But just the review here, prophecy. The last week we're looking at prophecy that corrects. But we saw in the past couple of weeks that a word of prophecy, the simple gift of prophecy, and this is what was the challenge in this, is to find the simple gift of prophecy evidenced in the Bible. Because most times it is not the simple gift of prophecy. Most times it is given by a prophet and there are other aspects involved. There's the word of knowledge, there's the word of wisdom. But we're looking for the simple gift of prophecy because if we are going to follow in this, if we are going to do this, if I am going to operate in an area of prophecy, the gift of prophecy, then I need to have an example. I need to know what's there. And so we know that the things that are involved is that prophecy is for edification, Prophecy is for comfort. Prophecy is for encouragement. These are things that prophecy contains, but I'm not always exactly clear as to how to do that. So we're trying to get you clarity on this because this is something that you should be doing. And we asked you to take those praise reports, put them up on your refrigerator, and when you have an opportunity to walk in the gift of prophecy, to let the church know about it. And we don't have that much so far. So I'm assuming that not too many people are walking in this yet. But you should, because what did Paul say about the gift of prophecy? Desire the greater gifts, but especially, you don't need me to finish this, especially that you prophesy. He wanted the whole church to be flowing in this gift because it does not always have to manifest itself in the church service. It can manifest itself out in public, at the grocery store, at the gas station, all kinds of places this gift can manifest itself and we need to be operating in it. So we saw that the word of prophecy can contain what I know. What I know. Just because you know something doesn't disqualify you from giving a prophecy. And we we talked about that. I did this myself sometimes. If God would give me a word, a, a word of prophecy for somebody, well, I already know that about them. We think that everything has to be be borne out as to uh, uh, supernatural. God has to supernaturally reveal stuff to me. That's not the case because in all of these letters, He starts us off by, "I know your works." He based every single one of these prophecies to these to these churches based on what He knew. Now, of course, God knows everything, but he didn't disqualify himself because he knew it. It's okay. So you can have a word of prophecy based on what you know. If you know that somebody is going through something, God may give you a word about that situation. And it's perfectly acceptable. Look, I know you're going through some things. Most times we think we have to go up to somebody in prophecy and say, well, I don't know what you're going through right now. (laughs) But God gave me this for you. That's not always the case. Sometimes, look, I know you're going through this and God gave me this word for you based on what you know. I mean, if God can give prophecy based on what he knows, you can give prophecy based on what you know. 
So that's the first thing. Prophecy can contain what I know. Secondly, what I've learned. And we saw in the first prophecy that we, we looked at that there were some things that you would just learn in the Word of God and you'd be able to incorporate that into your prophecy. You could do that. That's perfectly fine. It doesn't have to be things that you don't know. In fact, it's better if it is something that you know. So a word of prophecy can contain what I know, what I've learned. In that particular one, the first one we looked at, they talked about the day and the hour of the Lord. That was things that they had learned about. Here's the third one, as well as what is given to me. God may give you some things that are not based on what you know or what you learned, and you can incorporate them in in the prophecy as well. But don't feel like they all have to be on that spot because it gets us, gets it to be so spiritual for us that I feel like I, I can't operate there. And yet according to Paul, this is entry level. This is entry level, um, uh, a gift of the Spirit. Now, I don't know about, about you, but if you ever have, uh, kept pets or specifically, anybody ever keep an aquarium? I mean, fresh water, salt water, or whatever it might be. Whatever you get into, whether it's fresh water or salt water, I have salt water right now, but in the, in the salt water area, there are different levels of fish. There are fish, what they call starter fish. That they're hardy. They're hard to kill. They'll go through the tough conditions of a, of a new tank. And so they call them starter fish. And some of these fish are fish you would not want to put in a tank later on. Because uh, a lot of them are damsels. Now, we're not talking about, you know, damsel in distress or anything like that. We're talking, this is the name of the fish. It's a damsel. There's a convict damsel, which is beautiful fish. It's just solid black with these white white spots on it. And uh, uh, there's a yellowtail damsel. Beautiful fish. Bright blue, yellow color, yellow tail. Really nice looking. But they'll eat up your other fish. I mean, they just get nasty. You don't want to have them in there. I started a tank and I put in, in what's called a six-line wrasse. How many have never heard of a six-line wrasse? I never counted the lines on them. I think there was more than six. But I had the six-line wrasse in there. And wrasse is spelled W-R-A-S-S-E. A little bit different from how it sounds. And I had the six-line wrasse in there. And they do all kinds of things. They eat stuff that you don't want in there. I mean, it's a really functional fish. And so I had this six-line wrasse in there, and then I was beginning to add some other fish, and I put some clownfish. How many people like clownfish? Everybody likes clownfish. I mean, clownfish are nasty. The only people who don't like clownfish are the people who have actually kept them. Because if you keep a clownfish, they are mean as anything. And if you get two of them, I don't know if you know about this, but how many watched, uh, what's that, Nemo? Nemo. Nemo. You know how they're half, naming half of them girls and half of them boys? That's false. Because when clownfish have babies... They have all boys. How many did not know that? When a clownfish has babies, they have all boys. Every single one of them is a boy. And what happens is, over time, this is how God made them. This is, they don't need surgery. <laughs> this is just how God made them. Over time, it, they'll, they'll form into these groups, and in the group, one of them will become dominant and become female. The females are the nasty ones. They get bigger and they're meaner. And they are extremely territorial. And they will defend their territory against anything, including you. So if I go into the fish tank and I'm cleaning the glass, I have to watch the clownfish. Because it would come at me. 
Now you may think little fish, big deal, don't have teeth, and you have not been hit by a clownfish before. Brother Les, have you been hit by a clownfish? Yeah. <laughs> you get hit by a clownfish, you won't say that's no big deal anymore. That uh, you, you just kind of you know you get stuff to get in there, so you don't have to put your hand near the clownfish because they're just mean and nasty. But anyway, I put I got two clownfish. And I put them into the tank, and this six-line wrasse went after them like I had never seen a fish go after other fish. I mean, as soon as they hit the water, he's chasing them around, and he's going to kill them. And I had to figure out a way to try and get this taken care of, and eventually we got it so that they had some protection. And I had, well, I had to get the six-line wrasse out. How do you get a, you know how to get a fish out of a reef tank? If you have a freshwater tank, you take all the stuff out, you go in there and you scoop them out. It's no big deal. If you have a reef tank, that don't happen. Because you've got stuff in there that don't get moved. And they hide behind it. So I had to come up with a fish trap. And so I came up with a makeshift uh, fish trap. I got a bottle, just a regular water bottle, cut part of it off, flipped it around, stuck it back in, inside, and then put some food in there that he would like. She, I don't know what it was. And so I just let this thing in there for a little while, and I had a string on it, so that when the, the thing would go inside, I'd pull it up, and he'd be trapped. And it took me a little while, but I got that sucker in there, pulled that sucker up, took him out, took him back to the fish store, said, here you go. <laughs> and we got rid of that, that sucker. He's a great starter fish, but he, well, I couldn't keep him any longer than that. And then they have other ones. I, I kept one of these one times. It's called a powder blue tang. Beautiful fish. Absolutely just the beautiful, beautiful blue, just majestic in the way they swim. Absolutely gorgeous. But they are just ick magnets. They just get ick all the time, and you gotta feed them. And mine got ick one time, and I had to treat it, and it was just, it was, uh, it survived. We were able to take it out because you can't put medicine into a reef tank. So you had to, I had to pull him out, put him into a freshwater dip. He looked like he was gonna die. And, uh, eventually we got him over it and, and took him on out. But anyway, there's starter fish, there's, there's ones medium, medium range, and then there's those that are, you know, for the, for the uh, people that have been in the hobby for a while. They're a little bit tougher to, to care for and to keep alive. And so we uh, we don't want to do that. But this is kind of like a starter gift of the Spirit. This is an area that anybody can start on. He wants everybody to prophesy. So you can see this as a starter gift of the Spirit. And yet, how many Christians follow after this? We need to be walking in this. So let's go over here to the to the Scripture. In Revelations chapter 2, verse 12, And to the angel of the church of Pergamos write, These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. We'll talk about that sword here in a little bit, not yet. But he's got this sharp two-edged sword. Verse 13, I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas, uh, Ant- I'm sorry, Antipas was uh, faith- my faithful martyr who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Now, how many know, or how many are familiar with the word martyr? Now, if I were to ask you, I'm not going to ask you, but if I were to ask you, what does martyr mean? How many of you would say, one who dies for their faith? Yep. Do you know this word did not mean that until Christians were persecuted? This word in the Greek is a, is a simple word, and you would never guess this word if you're looking at it, because we get our word martyr from it, and that just it, it, um, taints our thinking on this, this word. This word means witness. 
It's the word you were to use for witness. If you were going to call a witness in a court case, that witness, that martyr, would come out and sit in the witness chair and give testimony and then go back. But there's no threat of dying. They were a witness. It became martyr as in one who dies for their faith because people were a witness for their faith. They were a witness for Jesus and they were dying in the Roman Empire. And because of that, this word became came to mean one who dies for their faith. But that's not what it meant initially. And you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Now Antipas is, uh, if you go through history, he is called Antipas. But some people think this is not his name. Because his name is a compound word. Anti, how many of you, without even knowing Greek, how many of you can figure out what anti means? Against. Pas means all. So this means against all. So it's, some people think he has the nickname, he's against everything. He's just one of those fanatical Christians, and whatever we want to do, he's against it. And they think it's a nickname. But he is referred to in historical writings as Antipas. So it seems like it could be a name, but it may not be. He was a bishop in the, in the city. And here's what he did. He would cast out demons out of people. Now get this. He cast out so many demons out of people in the city that this is how it is written about. This is not in the Bible. This is written in other places. It is written about him that the demon spirits complained to the priest of the idolatrous temples about Antipas. They wanted him gone. Can you imagine that? You have cast out so many demon spirits in the city that the demons are now complaining to the priest, we've got to kill this guy. <laughs> we've got to get rid of him. He's casting out too many demon spirits. And this is one of the things that he did. Now, obviously, he, he was uh, uh, preaching the gospel and, and standing for the things of God. But when demon spirits came up, he didn't back down. This is an idolatrous city. They had four major idols that I was able to find so far that they worshipped. Four major ones. Did I put them in your outline for you or do I just, are they just in mine? I only gave you three? Oh, there's a fourth one. Athena was one. Zeus is another. In fact, Zeus is uh, one, one of the main gods and he's one of the uh, main ones, uh, main, main temples you're going to see there. Asclepius. Or Asclepius, the god of the supernatural healing. This was one of the main centers for worshiping the god of supernatural healing. He was a god of divine healing. I have a note. A spirit that brought supernatural healing. The city was most known for this god. This, uh, this was best known in roughly about, the, this, this particular god had about 200 Greek shrines and temples all across the, the, uh, the kingdom there. There were three main ones. Pergamum was one of the three. They were places of healing. They would do things like dream, dream therapy. Now get this, you go, this will probably drive most of you away. Snakes. 
They had diet regimes that they would put you on, exercise regimes that they would put you on. They had baths that they would put you into, all kinds of different ways for healing. And um, I am told that there is a sign upon the entrance. Now, I didn't make this in my notes. I'm not, not sure if it, the entrance was for the temple or the entrance for the city. But this is the sign that was for the, the temple. If you think you have seen some stupid signs now, here's the sign. Death cannot enter here. I mean, all you need is one person to die and take care of that. But they apparently didn't stop them. Just like today, you know, you have people that put these stupid signs up. And even though, obviously, those signs aren't working, they still hang on to them. Here's the fourth one. Dionysus had one of the great temples there. In fact, there were ruins of it near one of the amphitheaters. The uh, the the uh, temple had burned down and the Roman emperor rebuilt it. I forget which Roman empire it was that rebuilt it. But there was... It was rebuilt so that this the, this city would still be known for that. So there was four four um, idols that they would worship in this city. So a lot of paganism going on in this place. This also became a place for emperor worship. And in fact, this is beginning in John's day, but is going to take off and really get going. This was the isolated city. Pergamos is, is not like the one we looked at last time, which was built to spread Greek thought and, and be a protection. We've seen the, things like that. This one was more of an isolated city. And so what they wanted the city f- to do was to protect the Greek thought, to protect the idols, to protect the worship of these idols. This is a, a place of protection, a place of isolation. We can put, put these things up there and things won't come in to corrupt it. Now, if you want a city that is going to correct Greek or protect Greek thought and keep those idols and the worship of those idols pure, who is your enemy? The church. The church is a big enemy. Now, we don't have any list that Paul had gone into this city to start a church. It seems that while he was at Ephesus, he may have made a trip out here or those that he converted and trained up made a trip out to Pergamos from the city of Ephesus. And this is where this, this church came from. But it more than likely has some roots in the Apostle Paul. But that's some of the history of this, of this particular city. He says in verse 13 again, I know your works and where you dwell. This is where you're living at. Now if you're thinking, well if this city is so bad, why does it, why do Christian people stay there? Because how many of you know, if you don't like where you live, you just pick up and you move off to another place? But not, doesn't seem to, that the people in the Romans, uh, Roman citizens, or if you weren't a Roman citizen, if you were just uh, one of the people in the empire, you may not have had as much freedom to move. You may have been stuck there. And these people may be there and kind of stuck there. Maybe they'd like to get out. But Rome has more of a, of a handle on where it is that you can go. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. This is where Satan's throne is. It's actually called Satan's throne. I asked Daryl if he would pull out some pictures for us on this. And the first picture we're going to show you is what this looked like in the area of Pergamos. So in Pergamos, if we were to, if you were to see it, this is what Satan's throne is. This is actually the temple of Zeus. This temple of Zeus was uh, had a lot of gold in it, and where they didn't put gold, they would paint gold 
and it was set up on a high hill, and so you could see the reflection of the gold from wherever it is you came. There would be lots of smoke that would come up from here because there were constantly sacrifices being made. But this is what they had. This is the temple of Zeus, and in the temple of Zeus was the throne of Satan. If you can go to our next picture. Now that, of course, is just supposed. What it, we don't know exactly what it looks like, but it's, it was actually called one of the seven wonders of the world, one of the great wonders of the world. This is in Russia. In Russia, there is a particular monument there. How many have ever heard the Tomb of Lenin? The Tomb of Lenin is if you ever if you ever go up there. Rick Renner ties a great uh, tour that he does of all this, and he'll take you into the the tomb of Lenin. He says, if you look all around, you're going to see Russian architecture. And Russian architecture is very distinct. And amidst all this Russian architecture sits this thing. And it is so different from the rest of the architecture, you're wondering, where did this come from? Because what you're seeing right there is not something that was built by the Russians. It was something that was built in Pergamos. And it is the seat of Satan. The tomb of Lenin is actually the seat of Satan. What happened during the World War was there are two people who wanted to get the seat of Satan in Pergamos. One's name was Hitler. The other was Lenin. They were on opposite sides. They were fighting each other. And they battled each other until they came on down. Unfortunately for Hitler, he lost the battle. I'm not talking about he lost the war. I'm saying he lost the battle to get there first. Lenin got there first and they carted that thing all the way back up to Moscow and they reset it up. And so Hitler was disappointed, but what he did was he built a replica of it and if you go over to the Berlin Museum, you will see the replica of the seat of Satan that Hitler wanted. And so now you've got two seats of Satan but when, when this was going on in the days of Pergamos, in the days of John, what you had on top, and I don't believe you see that now, that's a closer look of the, the seat of Satan. What you had on top of the seat of Satan was a bronze bull. This bronze bull had horns, several horns coming out of its head. There was a fire pit underneath of the bronze bull. And so what you would have is that when they were persecuting the Christians, that they would use this altar of Zeus to persecute the Christians. And Antipas was one of those ones who was persecuted this way. This is not documented in the Bible. It's documented in other places. And what they did with him was they brought him before the the emperor, or the, I'm sorry, the ruler of the, the city there. And in order for that, we need our, we need our um, volunteer. Who's going to be our volunteer? Lissy's going to be the volunteer? Okay. Now see, if I picked you, I would have been accused of favoritism. We have, we have two swords. I need you to pick one. All right, that's the sword we're going to pick. You are going to be the ruler in Pergamos right now. So stand up on the stage. Now, we don't have how this is, how this was actually done, but what they had in, in Pergamos 
was a particular type of rule, and it was, uh, I believe there's a name for it, I'm not sure if I put it in your outline for it or not, uh, but I believe it's, it's something along the lines of the order of the sword. And so what you would do is the ruler would stand up with his sword, and in one motion with the sword, he would decide if a person would live or if they would die. There was no jury. There was no trial. It was simply his desire. He had the rule of the sword. And so I'm going to ask you right now to to uh, make a motion. You can make up. It can be anything you want because I could not find anything on what the motion was. And we need a motion that says you must die. What motion would you like to pick for this? No, we got to use your sword. You got to have the sword and you got to use the sword somehow, wave the sword in a certain way that every time you wave it that way, that means that person has to die. Going to go just right along like that? All right. So if we just wave the sword like that, that person dies. All right. Wave it real good. All right. That's what Antipas saw. And so he's going to die. Thank you very much. Appreciate the sword. So we can think of the, the order of the sword. That's all that it took is the ruler to say this is what's going to happen. So Antipas was brought before the ruler of the sword and they said, you need to submit to the idols. You need to offer a sacrifice to Zeus or you need to um, declare him as God or whatever it was. And he said, no, I will not do it. And so by, by the order of the sword, he gave the motion and Antipas, uh, I'm sorry, Antipas was taken and put into the bronze bull and then they would light the fire and they would heat up the bronze bull and they would basically fry him. Now that's not a quick death. That's a very painful death. And what would happen, and this was intentional, is that the person who's dying would make some screams. Because, I mean, come on, that hurts. Being, can you imagine being on a frying pan? And as they would scream, the horns that were in the head of the bull would amplify the screams so that all the people in the city could hear the screams of who's dying. And Antipas stood before that, that emperor. Deny Jesus. Declare Zeus as God. And he said, I will not. And they killed him for it. The Word of God here is telling us that there are people, not just Him, but others, who held so strongly to the truth that when faced with that kind of a death, said, I will not bow to Zeus, the emperor, or any other god. And they knew what awaited them. They knew what would happen. They'd be put into that bronze beast and the fire would be lit I tell you if that was me I'd say just cut my head off it's a whole lot faster they saw that was coming and they said we will not give in this is the church of Pergamos this is the church that Jesus is speaking to oh you got one of thank you for that didn't even see that was up there so there you go. That's what they would face. But he said to them, 
I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Now, we, we've had evil rulers. We've had evil people in our country. Can we ever say that we've had Satan's throne here? The throne of Satan. They invited, we want Satan to come and sit on this throne and rule us. That's what they were inviting. When they offered to Zeus, we want Satan to come and to sit on this throne and rule us. That's submitted. And these are the people that you are interacting with as a Christian. It said, And you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr who was killed among you where Satan dwells. That didn't deter him. You want to become like Antipas? I don't care what you do to me. I'm not going, I'm not bowing. And just like in last week, if you did not participate in the trade guilds, and if you did not participate in all the, the things that they did in these trade guilds that were against what you believed as a Christian, and if you got out of it, you had no job, they faced that too. But they would not deny their faith and they held fast to His name. That word there, hold fast, means they have a masterful or a superior grip. A masterful or a superior grip. How, how many people had a dog when they were growing up? Or maybe have one now? And that dog had a grip. I mean, yet when that dog got hold of something, you did not get it out of that dog's mouth unless that dog wanted you to. Bulldogs are especially good at this. I mean, they are bred to grab hold and not let go. I have seen a bulldog be thrown in the air, whipped around. He's still got hold of that. He's got, whip him around. It don't matter. He's hanging on. <laughs> His feet are off the ground. We're moving all over the place. But I am not letting go. <laughs> That's a hold fast. <laughs> we had shepherds. Shepherds didn't hold fast like that. But bulldogs, things like this, they would, they would grab hold. And they're not letting go. And this is what he's saying to them. You held fast with a superior grip. No one could shake you from that grip. You held fast to my name. We serve the Lord Jesus Christ. We do not serve Zeus. We do not serve any of these other gods. We serve this one. Jesus Christ. He is the only one we will worship. You will die if you keep that up. I don't care. Kill me. This is what the church here did. And this is what he's commending them for. You didn't deny my name. And you, did not, um, you held fast to my name and you did not deny my faith. This is not talking about faith to get stuff, faith to be healed. This is talking about faith in the Word of God. Faith for salvation. Even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr. But again here at the beginning of verse 13, I know your works and where you dwell. If you were living in a place that had all these idols, you were not able to move out. People you know and love who stood for God were dying horrible deaths because of their stand for this. How many of you would go to God and say, God, we need to get out of here. This needs to stop. Don't, how many might think this? Don't you care? Don't you care what we're going through? Don't you see what it is that we're going through? 
Don't you care? See, being in the midst of tough times, evil people, or under heavy living conditions, it does not mean Jesus doesn't care. Because these people were under it. And Jesus is writing them a letter. I know your works. I know where you're, where you're living. I know what's around you. I know all the evil that's amongst you. I know that the evil they are concocting against you. I know the schemes that they have against you. I know that. Don't think that just because you're in really tough situations that God doesn't care. That was the inspiration behind our bulletin cover here this morning. Couldn't find a good one out of Revelation, so I went over here and got this one. Well, let's, uh, let's go on. Now, this prophecy tells us that there is a group of people here in the city, likely the majority of the church, were holding on to faith and the face of great persecution was the norm. This is what they did. From the wording, the best I can tell, just I read it over and over again, the best I can tell from this is that the majority of the people are being discussed in this first part. Can you imagine being under all that persecution and most of the church is on the right side of the issue? But then we get into verse 14. But I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Now, I've been, again, I read over and over and over and just keep reading it over just to get the picture of it, make sure I have the right, the right thing here. It doesn't sound like he's speaking to two different groups. It sounds like he's speaking to one group. But I have a few things against you. How can you include the first group who's holding fast to his name with the other group that is not? And as we saw last week, there must have been some kind of tolerance from the first group towards the second group. Maybe they thought, boy, our numbers are, are small. We don't have that many people and we need to keep them. I don't know. But the only way that you can exhort the first group about what the second group is doing is that the first group either allows it, condones it, or something. Doesn't speak against it. Well, we're not going to teach against those things because, uh, well, we don't want to get that group mad. I don't know what, what it would be. But when we come to the teachings of the doctrine of Balaam, I'm going to throw something out here to you that might be, a, might be the case. The doctrine that is being taught here may or may not be to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols to commit sexual immorality. That may not be what is being done. That's what, what Balaam did. But that's not all Balaam did. It says the doctrine of Balaam. Now that's something more foundational than just the, the few acts. Then he describes some of the acts that Balaam did. But that's not something that Balaam did all the time. That's something he did under one story we have in the, in the Word. If you look up Balaam, 
in in writings. How many how many know the answer to this one? In the Bible, who is discussed more, Moses or Balaam? Hands down, Moses. Right? You go outside the Bible into other writings, and it's completely the opposite. There is more written about Balaam than there is about Moses. They were both alive at the same time. They were both considered to be prophets. But the, uh, all the other nations around wrote about Balaam extensively. Very little about Moses. In the Bible, we have mostly about Moses and a few references to Balaam. Balaam was well known in the ancient world. And the supposition is that he understood the Word of God enough so that he could figure out when somebody stepped outside of what the Word of God told him to do. And he would know what kind of a fate would come upon them. And so he would predict that fate based on his knowledge of the Word. Not because God spoke to him. And so people began to say, boy, if he curses you, you are cursed. Because he stayed on the one side. He stayed on the cursed side, not on the blessing side. When he saw people of God move out from what they're supposed to do, like the Israelites, he would pronounce things upon them. And so it may be that many of the things that happened in the wilderness that we see that God judged them for and the rebellions that they did, it may be that Balaam kept careful note of all the things that were going on and Balaam acted like he was cursing the people of God. And then they saw God execute judgment on them and people gave him credit for it. That may be what had happened. But he had this reputation that whoever he cursed would be cursed. We know that from the Word of God. So it may be that the doctrine of Balaam was simply to understand what rebellion would do and predict it. That's one of the things that, that he would do. It may be something right along those, those lines. And so there may have been some people in the church who were seeing people do some things and then predicted bad stuff about them. And maybe that bad stuff came about. That may have been what it is, or he did exact, they did exactly what, what was, uh, mentioned here, in that they counseled them to go in the way of sacrificing idols and to commit sexual morality. Probably in the same area that we saw in the last week, where when they, uh, were confronted with losing their job, or staying with the trade guilds, stay with the trade guilds. Even though you gotta do some evil things, just, just stay with it. Don't uh, don't bail out. That may have been some of the things that were going on. But he didn't stop there. I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam. So they're there and they're holding on to the doctrine of Balaam. You guys are holding on to the name. They're holding on to the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things, sacrifice idols and to commit sexual immorality. So the devil is trying to come against the church from this great persecution on the outside, and Pergamos was one of the most persecuted churches uh, in the in the world at that time. 
If you were to mention Pergamos and you say, I'm a Christian in Pergamos, oh man, I mean instantly they, they knew you were, you were something. If you're going to maintain your faith and live in that city. It was one of the most well-known cities of persecution. But he says you, that you, um, he says you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam. Either they're allowing them to be there or they're not speaking against them. I think they're probably the latter one. You need to, you need to speak against some things that you know are not, are not fit for the kingdom. And they apparently weren't doing that. Thus, you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which things I hate. So you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Now, the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, if you were to ask somebody, I mean, it's, we, we talked about it a few times, it's mentioned in another church as well. We see this. This is basically doctrinal decay and compromise. We put that in your outline for you, but, uh, here's some, some specifics. First off, they would go about and say, folks, we are not under the law. We're in the New Testament. We're free from the law. Galatians 5.13, For brethren, you have been called into liberty, only do not use liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. So we're, we're not under the law anymore. So they would teach them this. Now, that's not a bad thing to teach them. But they would, they would branch off from that. Instead of branching off into where the, the New Testament doctrine goes off, they went off in the area, the body is not important. The body is evil, so it doesn't matter what you do with it. If your body does evil, takes part of evil, it's no big deal. It's not going to hurt you. It's your body. Your body is evil. Don't worry about it. we got to be concerned about the spirit, not the body. If the people around here want to make your body do certain things, go ahead. But keep your spirit pure. The third thing is grace is supreme. You'll hear this today. The Christian is so defended by grace, he could do anything without harming his spirit. Because the grace of God is so great. And here's the fourth one. Tell me if you've heard this one today. You have to understand sin. The only way to understand sin is to take part in it. If you don't participate in the sin, how can you relate to sinners? You ever heard that one? We gotta make sinners comfortable. If you still what the Word of God says, you live the life the way that Paul says to live it, you make unsaved people very uncomfortable. We don't want to make unsaved people uncomfortable. We want unsaved people to come in. So this is what they were teaching. This is what the Nicolaitans were doing. Now he goes on in verse 16, says, Repent or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Now here's where we're going to get into this word sword. This, this particular sword is not some, it's not the sword that is Paul uses when he talks about the sword of the Spirit. It's a much nicer, I mean it's a, it's a, it's a very good sword and it was a Roman sword and they used it as a very mobile sword, as a shorter sword and they could do a lot of things with it, but this sword was different. This sword is talked about a few times in the Word of God, mostly in the book of Revelation, but I believe once or twice we saw it in the Gospels. Can you put up our picture of our sword? This sword is the Ramphaya. And what it was, this one doesn't look like it's quite done that way, but you hear from the, the, the Scripture. 
And most of the ones I were seeing were, were this way. But it's a double-edged sword, but it looks like a sickle. And so what they would do is it has a longer handle on it and allowed you to get... And I saw some people doing a demonstration with what you could do with the sword, and it was rather remarkable. But they would take this sword and they would thrust it into the invading army. And then they would just take it and they would just go back and forth and start chopping people up. And the sword was so hardened and so sharp, it would cut through the heavy armor that they would wear. That's what they would do. They'd just stick this sword in there. It was longer than some of the other ones. And they would just whip it back and forth and start cutting people up. And this is the sword that he's talking about. This is the sword that that he says he's going to come out there. Repent or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Now, he's, now he says them. Before he said you. Now he says them. So if he's coming in, he's coming after those guys that are holding to the doctrine of the Nicolaitans and, and the other stuff that they're doing. He's coming after them. But basically what he's saying here is, and I, I wrote this down, make sure I got it right. If these leaders do not repent, I will hack my way back into the church and retake it. <laughs> it's that important. He says, these guys better repent and clean up their act. Because if they don't, I'm coming in with this kind of a sword. And you see, we say sword, and we just we just have sword. They don't just have swords. They have a name for each of the different types of sword. So they had a name for this sword. If, when he's used this word... This is the image that came to them. They saw this sword. They knew how deadly it was. They knew what it could do. Now, verse 17. Now we got all the negative stuff out of the way. Let's go back to the positive stuff, huh? He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, he says this often. Understand this, just because a word of prophecy comes from the very mouth of Jesus doesn't mean that the church will hear it. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. Now to him who overcomes, this is from the Greek word nikeo. How many can hear something in that word? Anybody have on a pair of Nikes? Now, Nike, the name Nike comes from the Greek goddess Nike. They don't pronounce it that way. They pronounce it Nike. But it comes from the Greek goddess Nike. But that word, this, this particular word, means to overcome. Nike was the goddess of victory. That's why Nike, you know, they, they, they took that. I don't buy Nikes. I have other reasons to not buy Nikes. Had them for a long time. Uh, I don't care if they, they make they make good stuff. I won't touch it for a lot of reasons for which I am not going to bore you with now. But um, if you have Nikes, don't don't think that I'm, I'm going to you know see you come in with your Nike apparel and go ha. <laughs> There's nothing to do with that. But anyway, he says here. To him who overcomes. The tense here does not mean one who has overcome, but one who continues to overcome. He's not saying 
He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who has overcome, like it's already a done thing. No, to him who continues to overcome, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. So apparently he's got some hidden manna. Now we know how good the manna was for the children of Israel. And just as I was going through some of this stuff, here's some nice little trivia for you. Maybe you've never heard these figures, these numbers before. But I saw, this is not me estimating, this is the rabbis. The rabbis made an estimate in some of the rabbinical writings. I don't know how far these writings went back, but they made some estimates as to how much manna fell in one day. How much manna do you think fell in one day? One day, how much manna would fall? Because they didn't collect it all. What was left over kind of just disappeared with the dew. So they made an estimate on how much fell. And here's what their estimate said. That what would fall in one day, remember it fell for 40 years. What would fall in one day would feed the children of Israel for 2,000 years. What fell in one day would feed the children of Israel for 2,000 years. They went on from that and they estimated over the course of their 40 years in the wilderness. Now I'm giving it to you here in tons. How many, how many pounds are in a ton? 2,000. The number of tons is 65,700,000 tons of manna fell over 40 years. I have no idea how they estimated that, came up with it. But if you drop enough food for 2 to 4 million people every single day, except Sabbath, for 40 years, 65,700,000 tons. Multiply that number by 2,000. That's how many pounds. That's an estimate. That's a lot. What it tells you here is that uh, God is not the God of just enough. <laughs> God says, you want some manna? Here's 2,000 years worth. That's just for today. How many know that's overkill? I'm going to give you enough manna for today, but, you know, if you needed to, this would cover you for 2,000 years. Even if you cut that in half, out of 1,000 years. Wow! We don't serve a God who just barely gets through. We got a God who's more than enough. That's a supply right there. And he says, well, you know what? I got some hidden manna here. And I'll give you some of that to eat. Now that may be a spiritual metaphor and that we're going to give you what you need spiritually to get you through. Maybe it's a physical one because they may have had trouble finding food. But whatever it is, he says, to him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. But either way, you've got to trust that I'm going to hang on and God's going to come through for me. And I will give him a white stone and on the stone a new name written which no one knows except him who receives it. You're going to get a new name. No one's going to know it until you get it. Then you say, oh, that's the name. So I can't tell you what that name is because it's not given to me. It's not given to you. But the ones that are giving it to, boy, that's going to be something.
Now, we, have, we left you with this question here at the beginning. What side would I have been on? Now, just about every single one of us would say, well, I would be on the side that would hold fast in the name of Jesus. I wouldn't let that go. That, that go. Just like, how many of you believe that at the end of the millennia, when the re- revolt goes on, and Satan is, is uh, released to deceive, how many of you believe, I will not be one of those that is deceived? How many believe that? Appreciate that. The rest of you all better get fixed up there. I'm not sure how that's, that's going to go. <laughs> so we're convinced, end of millennia, I'm on the right side. I'm convinced that if I was in Pergamos, I'd, I'd, I'd take a bullet. I'd go into the bull. I wouldn't deny Jesus' name. But how have you done in other, other areas? And I'll tell you what, if we, if we examine some of the things that our church, uh, the church overall, church of the modern day here, era has been through, uh, we haven't done so well in recognizing what's coming against us. Now, over the course of years, and I, I, I always get some, some fun fan letter whenever I get into these things, but um, we've talked to you about the influence of the spirit of Antichrist. I've told you before that every single president in my lifetime has been influenced by the spirit of Antichrist. I also made the statement to you that President Trump is the first one I have ever seen in my entire life who ever fought against it. And I can give you examples. I'm not going to. If you need examples, let me know later on. I can give you examples. It's really easy. If you know what the spirit of Antichrist is, then you know when someone is fighting against it. It's a piece of cake. Because the spirit of Antichrist is all in the Old Testament. It's all in the New Testament. You can follow it. The spirit of Antichrist is always the same thing. And if you know the spirit of Antichrist... You can pick it, pick it out. Now, when we went over that, I also told you some things about uh, 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 U.S. presidents. Because we've had a, a number of ones. I know when uh, President Clinton was in office, how many people were trying to make a case he was going to be the Antichrist. I don't remember that as, as well, but I remember when President Obama was, was the, uh, in there. I told you he is not the Antichrist and can't be. He don't qualify. He wouldn't be it. And as I was putting this together for the, the Zeus, I did not realize this. I may have realized it and just forgotten. But if you would have heard this, you would have, um, you would have been able to spot it, uh, right off the bat. But I had forgotten that President Obama had made a trip to the, um, I believe it was the Soviet Union. I don't think it was the one in, in, in Germany. It may have been the one in Germany, but anyway, he made a, made a trip to one of the, um, thrones of Satan. And he gave a speech from there. And I saw a couple of people who were putting prophecies out saying they were basically expecting uh, President Obama to uh, take the crown and just become the Antichrist right there. (laughs) Now, if you know anything about the spirit of Antichrist, you know he he didn't qualify to be it. It wasn't going to happen that way. And, you know, you can just kind of laugh. They're just people who just don't, you don't like one president and you want to put that kind of a title on them. Because I just don't like them, and uh, they would do that. But um, no, he didn't. He didn't qualify, and um, there's a lot of reasons why. But we've we spent time on that before, and we don't need to spend time on that uh, that again. But 
how do you do in identifying the spirit of Antichrist? Because to me, it's, 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 it's as blatant as, as it can be. I can just look at one of our leaders, and if it's not a leader in, in uh, office, the spirit of Antichrist has nothing to do with them. They need leaders in office. They need people that are in political power. Because it's a political spirit. It's not a, it, it, it's a church spirit only in the way that the church can influence, uh, policies that, that regard to, um, to nations. Because that's where this thing is going after. You can trace it through the Old Testament. You can see it yourself. If you, if you need help with that, let me know. But how have you done in identifying those who are influenced by the spirit of Antichrist? If you cannot identify one who is of the spirit of Antichrist because you like them, enjoy them, whatever it might be, or cannot identify one who fights against it, how are you going to do when the deceiver is leashed on this earth? How are you going to do? I don't know how you're going to do with that. How are you going to do when you receive a word from God or evidence exposing someone you like is false? Yeah, but I like that one. It don't matter. When the evidence came out that Saul was false, he had fallen in a false way, and Samuel kept praying for him. What did God say to Samuel? Get up! Why are you doing this? Get up! Get busy doing what I... My anointing has moved to someone else. And you need to get moving. He was kind of short with him. Because he expects that this is something that you, you pick up on. Saul had given in to the spirit of the influence of Antichrist and had come against the things of God. A man handpicked by God had turned and gone that direction. So when he saw the anointing on David, what did he, what did he want to do? Kill him. I got to eliminate him. Because there's the anointing of God on a man who's going to lead the nation. The spirit of Antichrist needs to eliminate that. If he was just going to be a pastor, probably wouldn't even care. If he was just going to be a prophet, not a big deal. But you see, David was going to become king. And that's why he attracted the attention. What are you going to do when you receive a word from God or evidence exposing someone that you like as false? How easy is it for you to let that go? I've had preachers, ministers, that I like that I didn't give in to the spirit of Antichrist. Uh, again, the just not in the right classification for, for that, but gave in to wrong, wrong teaching and wrong doctrine. Once I saw that, I'd drop them in a, in a, in a heartbeat. Nope. That's, that's, I mean, I don't mean they just got some things wrong. I mean, they were following after a wrong spirit of teaching. You follow after a wrong spirit, that's, that, you can't fix that. How easy is it for you to compromise on moral or faith issues? Do you find it easy? If the Spirit of God says, Certain things in the area of our, our how we be, behave towards the opposite sex, the people that we're not married to. If the Spirit of God says certain things about how we're to operate, and I, well, I, that doesn't mean. If you can be deceived into going against that, don't tell me that you'd be on the right side in Pergamos. I'm not saying that you wouldn't be. I'm saying don't tell me that you would, because here you got evidence right now that you're not living that way. You're not going in that direction. What about standing up for the truth you know to family, friends, people that are close to you? Or do you prefer to stay quiet or even compromise? Just to keep the peace. 
just to keep, as some people call it, well, we just want to keep unity. Hogwash with unity. Jesus wants people that hold fast the faith, that stand up for His name. And He commended them for it. But you got to be careful. Don't be tolerating certain things. Don't be going after certain 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 things in in this area. And um, we we got to be careful. Now, my role here as a pastor of the church is to make sure that spiritually I feed you. My number one responsibility during the week is to go into the Word of God and dig into it and find out what is God saying for you folks and to bring it on out here. And to, and to teach. teach. That's my number one thing. Every once in a while, I do have to veer off into some of the things that are going on in the, in the current day so that you see where the Word is, is influencing this or should influence this. Every so often, God says, speak on, talk about this one. And I'll tell you, sometimes he's, He sent me with some of them. I said, you know. <laughs> you know there's going to be some, some backlash on it. And even, t- even today, I'll say some things in it and some people... We'll hear that, yep, I, I know that's from God. And other people will say, mm-mm, exactly like it is there. Now, I'm not telling you that I hear perfectly, that everything that I hear from God is absolute gold. I know I can miss it. I know I have missed it in the past. That's why I spend, spend more time to, to make sure and, and stay at it all that I can. But I know what this world is. And as much as you think I despise the news media, you don't know the half of it. I cannot unleash on you what I feel about the news media. How evil I think they are. But it's, it's amazing that this news media, who spent three years covering election fraud when there was no evidence, have decided in less than a week that there isn't any. <laughs> Doesn't that seem odd to you? I, I despise everything about the media people. They're, they're the ones I look upon them and I say, I cannot wait for the judgment of God to come down upon you. I'm, I'm almost almost in, in the area of Jonah territory. I knew if they repent, you'd forgive them. I'm almost, I'm not quite there. If they repent, I'll, I'll welcome them in. <laughs> but boy, they have done some evil. And there's other people that are in in power in places that are doing evil too. And I get amazed at how Christians cannot see what is plain to me that is plain on their face. And those Christians cannot tell me that in the end they would side with God. Because this is about as clear what the what evil goes on in our world. I don't know, I'm I'm sure I'm with good company with this, and many of you are in the same Area. How many of you just walk on out in this world and you see all the evil and say, Dear God, please, let it be now. <laughs> let it be now. Let these people who want all this evil in the world, let them have it. Let them destroy this world. Let them go into all the evil that they want to go. Take us out and go get them. Just go get them. I don't know about you, but I have that prayer pretty often no matter who's president. Because no matter what, evil is all around us. And it just seems to be getting bigger. And it seems like people are not standing up to it that used to. 
what you've got in this church is a word of prophecy that has come down from Jesus, the head of the church. And you've got one group over here that says, oh, that is a good prophecy. We knew these guys were bad. Now we were armed with some stuff to go after them. And these guys are over here and say, that is not God. Uh-uh. Because it's picking them out. And that's in the church. We're not talking about in the world. When I hear a word of prophecy, I need to check it with the word of God. Go right back to the Word of God. Because if you take what Jesus has said in this book of Revelation, these chapters in Revelation, and you go back to the Word, you will find everything He said confirmed in the Word. They may not like it, but it's in the Word. And these are things that He said. He said the same thing about the Nicolaitans and other places. He said the same thing about the uh, behavior that was going on. He said the same thing about standing fast, holding on to His name. He said all these things in other places. But now he specifically tailored it to this group and he targeted them and said, this is what's going on in your world. Would I, what side would I be on? Say, I know enough to know I'll never take for granted that I will always come down on the right side. I'm going to make sure that I keep going after the word, that I keep seeking after him. That I keep following. What is the spirit behind this? It is more important that it, the people that you listen to, whether prophetically or whether they are uh, teaching, whatever they are, it is more important that their heart would be right than their doctrine correct. Somebody said that to me one, one time and I thought, hmm, I'm not sure. And I thought about, yeah, that's right. That's right. Because I, how many how many of you know yourself, your doctrine wasn't correct as correct as it is now, even though maybe that's not 100%, but <laughs> you're at least more correct than you were before. But five years ago, ten years ago, oh yeah, I used to think that. I found out that your doctrine was incorrect, but your heart was right. Because your heart was right, you could, you, God could take you in the right direction and correct those things and get them out. But your heart has to be right. See, sometimes what happens with Christians is I get desensitized by the evil. I get desensitized by the need to compromise, the willingness to compromise, to change what it is that I'm doing. Compromise on the word. Well, we don't want those people to think that we hate them, so we're going to go ahead and just, you know, we're not going to preach in the word of God that those things that they're doing are wrong. Well, we need to be able to witness these people, so even though they're in a marriage that we don't think is scriptural, well, we're going to go ahead and we just need to compromise them. That's not what I get from these letters. I get from these letters, he says, hold fast. Hold fast. Don't, don't relinquish it. But remember, we're looking at this letter, these letters, these seven letters, we're looking at these letters as things that happened in the past. It's easy for us to be on the right side. Put yourself in Pergamos under the conditions they were in, hearing this word, knowing what was going on in the church, Imagine last week, if it's like we suppose it is, and the pastor's on one side and the pastor's wife is on another. Can you imagine what that church is like? And the pastor's wife is teaching certain things, and the prophecy comes down and condemns her for it? Whew. You imagine what that atmosphere is like? 
we must be careful because the pressure from the world is to compromise and to give in. But we need to stand with the Word of God. Which means it may not be popular. And people may walk away from you. People may not like you because of it. But you stand for the Word. You stand for the side that God is on. Those people that are against God, I need to be against them. Those people that are for God, I need to be for them. Even if we're not on the same page on everything, we're in the same, we serve the same God, we're both holding fast the same faith. There's some issues that ought not divide us, and there's other issues that we need to fight, and we need to hold fast and not let them go. Not because that issue is the important, it's the compromise. Once, God, once you have given in to compromise, it's easier to give in and compromise the next time. And easier to give in and compromise the next time. Just like they used to say with, with drugs. The best thing is just stay away from all. But, you, you know, they have those entry-level drugs. Well, just try, you know, just take a little bit of this. It's, it's just, you know, it's just recreational. No. See, once you make the compromise into that, then you make the compromise into other stuff. And then you make the next compromise. And then the next compromise. The devil is never satisfied with one compromise. But he has to find a place that he can get you to start. Hold fast the name of Jesus. Hold fast his faith. Would you all stand up with me? Father, we face some things in this world. Some of them seem pretty dark. And for some, we look at these things and we can just lose hope. But you gave this word to these people here in Pergamos for the purpose of encouraging them, pointing them in the right direction. You let them know that, all right, some bad stuff is going on around you. Might even be some bad stuff that happens to you. But on the other side... Boy, there's some glory. And if you go through some of those bad things, what I have for you on the other side is just for you. But just stay true. Just hold fast. Father, so many in this world, they want us to take your teaching about a man and a woman and alter it and pervert it. They want to take how you value life, how you value children, and they want to pervert it. They want to get us to covet and to feel that it's okay to go and break windows and rip off stores because I want this thing that all we're doing is getting back what is rightfully ours. And the list goes on. We could say so many things that are going on in our world that are trying to pull us in. But Father, we have your word to guide us. And oh, I thank you for it. 
no matter what it is that we face, even if we get to the place where we live in the city that it worships the emperor, and with one wave of the sword, you either live or die. We still will serve our God. We still will hold fast to his name and the faith of our God. I thank you for the strength that you give us. I thank you for the prophecy that can rise up on the inside of us. Not only to give, but also to receive. For Father, everybody gives prophecy, but nobody receives it. There is no benefit. But I need to be as good of a receiver as I am a giver. Father, I thank you for it. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. One more thing about this prophecy and even some of the other ones that are in there. Who is this prophecy written to? Church of Pergamos, right? How many of you live in Pergamos? Anybody here? Not a single person lives in Pergamos? And yet every one of you has studied this prophecy and has gleaned and benefited from it, right? You benefited from the prophecy to the church of Ephesus, the church of Laodicea, all the other churches. We had benefit from them. When a word of prophecy is given from one person to another, do you know that you can also gain benefit from what is said? All right, I know that wasn't spoken to me, but I'm in a situation just like that. And you can learn, you can glean. Just let that word of prophecy direct you back into the word of God and bring that enlightenment to the word and paint a picture of hope. Because that's what each of these seven prophecies were to do is to paint a picture of hope. Even the one to where there was really nothing good to say about them. Still there is a measure of hope if you repent. God is always about in prophecy giving hope. Have a real blessed week. Enjoy the things that God brings your way. Look for the hand of God. Take your prayers report card home with you. Find some things to write down that God has blessed you with. Bring it back and share with us next week. Have a great rest of the week. Bless some people before you go.